It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. This is our second episode on the calling to be converts, which is a name found for God's people only one time in the entirety of the Word of God, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27. Now, in the first episode last week, I mentioned to you that I would unveil on this sequel what the mysterious meaning of the word Zion is. And also, we want to add to that this idea of being contagious converts. I believe this episode is going to really help you, and it's really going to be encouraging. Let's start by quoting that verse, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her converts with righteousness. Now, the King James Version says Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. But those are interchangeable words, and we'll get to that in a little while. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her converts with righteousness. That's a mysterious statement. Now, let me give you some review of what we learned last week, that the word translated converts is the Hebrew word shub, S-H-U-B, which has a mysterious triune meaning. It means to turn away from, to turn toward, and to return. Other translations of that same passage term it a little differently. For instance, the New King James Version calls us her penitent ones, which is a reference to penance or remorse for sins, a heartbroken attitude over shortcomings and failures. The modern King James Version calls us returning ones. And so, again, that gives the flavor of meaning that we're turning away from the sin that we repent of, that we abhor, that we recoil from, we turn toward God, we long for him, and we return to a relationship with him. But it says, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her converts with righteousness. What is Zion? What does that relate to? What does that mean? Well, the word Zion means fortress. And it has seven basic meanings, one layered on top of the other, uh, each one layered on top of the other. Number one, originally the word Zion meant the southeast ridge of Jerusalem. It was actually a stronghold of the Jebusites, one of the last tribes to be conquered in the land of promise. And David was the one who conquered them and then set up his capital city there. And so it was the last stronghold of the enemy and became the capital city of the kingdom of God on earth. Isn't that exactly what God's done in you? You were a stronghold of the enemy. You were occupied by demonic powers who wanted to influence the world through you and corrupt you and destroy you for time and eternity. But then the beloved son of God came and tore down the stronghold, conquered the enemy and set up his kingdom inside of you. So number one, the word Zion originally meant the southeast ridge of Jerusalem. 
Number two, it also meant Mount Moriah, which is just slightly to the north, as well as that southeast ridge. Number three, eventually the word Zion meant the entire city of Jerusalem. And number four, it meant the Old Testament Israelites who identified with that city. They were also referred to as Zion in Isaiah chapter 51. And then number five, it refers to the high and holy place, a spiritual sphere that we ascend to when we worship God. In fact, I'll get to a scripture that relates to that in just a minute. Number six is a reference to the eternal city, New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ that will come down out of heaven from God. And number seven, most importantly, Zion is a reference to the inhabitants of that city, those who are married to God in an eternal relationship forever and forever. So Zion is a very sacred and rich biblical word. God refers to us as children of Zion. And there's a great revelation that goes along with that. In fact, I have a previous podcast where I talked about our calling to be children of Zion, and that's podcast number 74. I'll give you a link to it in the notes there at cpnshows.com. But we're not going to go into that particular area on this podcast. I do want to mention again, though, that Zion refers to a high realm of worship, living an ascended life where you are connected in covenant relationship with the king of Zion. Where do I get that? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews is comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he compares the Old Covenant to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, where God's thunderclap voice gave the Ten Commandments in the desert after the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt's bondage. But the law brought bondage as well. They were out of uh, Egyptian bondage, but then they came into religious bondage by the 16 by the 613 commandments of the Torah according to Paul's writings but we have not come to mount sinai the bible said we have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to god the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect So this is all metaphorical, it's all symbolic, but we haven't been called to Mount Sinai, which engendered fear in the hearts of those who heard the voice of God, but rather we've been called to Mount Zion, to this high realm of walking with God in the kingdom realm that is an invisible realm to the people of this world, but very real to those who have been born again. So now we understand more why it says Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her converts with righteousness. Because in order to enter that Zion kingdom, you have to be made righteous. And your righteousness is insufficient because all our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says. But if we come to Jesus, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God imparts to us, according to Romans 5, 17, the gift of righteousness so that we appear just as righteous in the sight of heaven 
as Jesus, the firstborn son. We are wrenched free from the grips of the curse of a fallen nature, the curse of satanic control, the curse of separation from God. And we are translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are redeemed with justice. Justice is fair treatment of those who are under assault, under abuse, under false accusation, or many other uh, descriptions could be given to it. And God looked at the accuser of the brethren, the prince of darkness, the one who subjugated the whole human race to his evil nature, and he saw those who were contaminated with that evil. And the God of justice decided Satan was more worthy of judgment than we of the human race who would turn our hearts toward God in repentance. And so he brought judgment on Satan, redeemed us, loosed us away from the bondage of being under his control, and translated us into this kingdom of light and love called the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is a Zion kingdom. I think it's also important to see that the word Zion means fortress. Think of that fortress. And if we are Zion, and the scripture declares we are, Isaiah 51, 16 uh, declares that we are. If we are Zion, then we are a fortress of faith in a world full of unbelief. We are a fortress of love in a world full of hatred. We're a fortress of goodness in a world full of badness. We are a fortress of of angelic activity in a world full of demonic control. We're a fortress of peace in a world full of anxiety and, and distraction. We are a fortress of purpose in a world full of vanity. And there's so many ways you can describe Zion. Thank God we are a part of Zion, and thank God we've been redeemed. And we have been converted from being children of darkness, children of Satan, children that were under bondage to the flesh, to children that are at liberty in the spirit, who are children of light and children of God. We've been converted, thank God. But the thing I really wanted to get to on this episode is the fact that we are converted by God to become his means of converting others. We are transformed in order to become his means of transforming others. In other words, we are contagious converts. Contagious converts. Think of that. Now, I've got three biblical examples, Moses, David, and Peter. And there's a lot of others, but those are the ones I want to bring out. First, Moses. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24, 25, and 26. Great passage of scripture that shows the conversion process in Moses' life. He turned away from the corrupt lifestyle he was used to in Pharaoh's court. He turned toward the truth that was rooted in the faith that was in the people of Israel who were in bondage as slaves in Egypt. And he returned to a relationship with God. And that's all hidden in this three-verse statement. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 
esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I like the way the King James says it. He had respect unto the reward. In other words, he realized the value of the reward that would come from making that transition from being a son of Pharaoh to a prophet of the truth. So there you go. In verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He turned away from the corrupt lifestyle he was involved in as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. Isn't that amazing how God set that up? He just, he, he can do it like no human being can do it by devising plans where we can maneuver things and manipulate things to work in our behalf. God just works behind the scenes invisibly and causes that floating basket with Moses in it to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. What are the odds of something like that happening? And that same God is orchestrating hidden events in your life. And for many years, it looked like it was to no avail. But then when Moses became of age, that's not just talking about physically speaking, how old he was at that point, 40 years old. The first 40 years, he learned how to be something of importance And the next 40 years, he learned how to be nothing. That was the conversion period where character was built in him. And the last 40 years, he learned how God can take nothing and make something out of it, something of great value. So anyway, he turned away from Pharaoh's court, that lifestyle of opulence and luxury and notoriety. He turned toward the suffering people of God, but truth was with them. And then he returned because he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And he, of course, had an encounter with God that changed everything at the burning bush. Well, that's Moses' example of a contagious convert. Why? Because after God converted him, he became the means by which an entire nation was converted from being slaves and contaminated by false religion, uh, beaten down and destroyed by life, to those who went through the wilderness, fed with manna from heaven, drinking water out of the rock, which was supernaturally supplied, preservation power, keeping their clothes from being tattered for 40 years, looking up in the night sky and seeing a pillar of fire, reminding them of God's personal presence. They went from total enslavement and bondage and depression and dejection and impoverished states in in Egypt to becoming the most enriched nation in the world because they were enriched supernaturally by knowing God who went before them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Think of that. Amazing. One man was converted and then a nation of over a million were converted. We don't know the exact number, but from certain things in Scripture, it seems that there were probably two or three million Israelites that were transformed in their lifestyle and their thinking because one man got transformed, a contagious convert. The same could be said of you. You may think yourself to be insignificant, but start filling the role of an influencer everywhere you go. 
It doesn't matter if it's one person at a time. Let every day be remarkable. Let every day be an adventure. When you walk out of your front door, make up your mind, I'm going out to be an agent of conversion. I'm going to go out and change depressed people into joyful people. I'm going to change lost people into found people. I'm going to change people who are bound by Satan to people who are liberated by God, by his word and by his spirit. And then one by one, you can change dozens, then hundreds, then thousands. Who knows what your potential might be? Now, let me take you to David next. I love, love, love this passage of scripture. Psalm 51 is a remarkable psalm because it shows David's heart toward God after he fell into adultery and murder. Can you imagine that? It boggles my mind to think that he soared into the heights of a prophetic calling where he so identified with the coming Messiah that he gave psalms like Psalm 22 and, and, uh, and, and, and revealed exactly what would happen in the Messiah's life. But then he plunges to the depths of depravity. How could that happen? But it did happen. And he prayed and said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He pled with God in humility, in repentance. He was a returning one, a penitent one, a convert. See, he didn't want to stay there in that evil lifestyle. That's what set him apart from Saul. Saul was arrogant and prideful in his sinful state of mind. That's why Saul never was retrieved from his fallen state. I think David's sins were greater than Saul's, but pride kept Saul bound. Humility extricated David from the pit that he fell into and gave him a new beginning. But listen to what he prayed in verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The New King James Version says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. The King James says, the New King James says, uphold me by your generous spirit. Listen to the next line. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. In other words, David is saying, if you'll just convert me from the mess my life has become, I'll become your means of converting others. I'll tell them about a merciful God. I'll tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can reach down into the mess you make of your life and redeem you again, restore you to what you lost. In other words, David is saying, I won't be quiet about it. If you'll pick me up, I'll pick others up. If you'll change me, I'll be your means of changing others. If you'll let the truth prevail in my life, I'll take people overtaken with falsehood and tell them the truth that can set them free. Now let's go to Peter. This is in a conversation Jesus had with Peter right toward the end of Jesus's earthly journey, right before he went to the cross. He warned him, and whenever you find God saying somebody's name twice, 
you can be sure something important is about to be said. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. I have a couple of questions I want to ask. First of all, why did the devil want Peter? I believe the devil is enough of a genius in the evil that he does, that he can see potential for good in people. He can see potential for leadership. He understands who can be an influencer. And he knew among all the disciples, Peter was the one with that kind of potential. He knew possibly what Peter was. I don't think he knew the future of what Peter would become. But he could tell just from three and a half years of following Jesus, this man has got something powerful and I've got to somehow cripple him spiritually and mentally and emotionally to prevent him from getting to his purpose. So some of the people that are the people of most potential in the body of Christ, of greatest purpose in the body of Christ, may well face the biggest battles on the way to their purpose coming to fulfillment. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Notice Jesus did not say, I'm, I'm praying for you that you will not fail. He said, I'm praying that your faith will not fail. Listen, many of you have failed. Some of you have failed miserably in your walk with God. You condemn yourself every day. You are so ready to beat yourself up mentally and emotionally over the bad steps you've taken in life. But your faith didn't fail. So you had an intercessor somewhere, the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And apparently he prayed that your faith would not fail because yes, you were groveling in the mud, but you got up and you cleaned off the mud and you started on your journey again. But you started with a new mindset and a new heart set. Because having required God's mercy, having required God's compassion, having required God's forgiveness, you're much more ready to give it away to others. So it's really part of the conversion process of becoming more like Jesus. Because Jesus told Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. When did that happen? Well, after Peter did the very thing he told the Lord he'd never do, if all men deny you, I'll never deny you. You better be careful about boasting. Well, he did the very thing he thought he was exempt from, and that was cowardice. He fell into it. He said, I don't even know the man. He cursed and railed and said, I'm not one of his followers. And then when Jesus looked at him, he went out and wept bitterly. Part of his conversion took place when he was weeping. There was a deeper humility that would be needful later on that came into him. So that when he stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, he wasn't full of arrogance and pride accusing the children of Israel, but full of humility and compassion, ready to bring deliverance to them also. But part of the conversion process also happened when Mary came back to the upper room, having seen the empty tomb and having heard the Lord say to her, 
go tell my disciples and Peter that I've risen from the dead. When she communicated that, I guarantee you, and I can almost envision it, what it might have been like. There was a hulk of a figure crouched with his head and his arms in the corner of a room, self-condemning, guilt-ridden because he denied the Lord. And he heard what Mary said, and I can almost imagine him lifting up his head and saying, Mary, did he mention me specifically? Did he mention my name? And she said, oh, yes, Peter, you're the only one he mentioned. And can you imagine the eruption of joy that came in his heart? He still loves me. He still loves me. I'm not rejected. I'm not cut off. I can start again. That was part of the conversion, birthing hope in him when he thought his situation was hopeless so that he could go out and preach to Israelites that even though they crucified the Messiah, what seems like a hopeless and condemning verdict that should be on their lives can be canceled and they can be the first converts to Christianity. And about 3,000 were converted that day. Think of that. Peter preached. This is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel after the Russian mighty wind came in the upper room and about 3,000 were converted to Christianity that day. And then after he raised up the man at the gate, beautiful, and he went leaping and jumping and praising God, Peter preached again. And what was it? I think about 5,000 were converted because he said, repent and be converted. And God said, I will send a refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Imagine that. And I'll get the exact chapter and verse for you in just a moment. But on our way to that passage of scripture, I've got to take you to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, because this is the great value of of the conversion process. Praise God. And I want to end with this passage of scripture, but first I want to read to you exactly what Peter said to the people that he preached to when the man at the gate, beautiful, was converted from being a cripple to a joyous, ecstatic witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter said, repent therefore and be converted. Turn away from the legalism of Judaism. Turn away from your lifestyle that is less than what God wants it to be. Turn toward God and return to him by means of accepting and receiving the Messiah. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen to you today. If you participate in this ongoing process of conversion. Because see, it doesn't stop with salvation. It's a daily experience. And the best thing you can do with the transformational change that is going on in your life every single day is to become an agent of transformational change to others. And here's the value of it. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brothers, If any of you strays from the truth and someone corrects him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. The King James says, will hide a multitude of sins. Go out and find a sin-ridden, sin-corrupted, sin-contaminated person who's hopeless, full of despair, and turn them from the error of their ways. Convert them. And when you do, you'll save a soul from death. Be a contagious convert. That's what I speak to you today. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Now take it to heart and apply it to your life. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.